I'll invite you to open your Bibles with me to Hosea chapter 1. Hosea chapter 1. So if your Bible is used to opening to Matthew, it's not too far from there. It's several books before that, 12 books before that. But Hosea is kind of near the end of the Old Testament. So if you go to the middle of your Bible, and then you find Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, Daniel, and then right after that will be Hosea. Or if you look in the beginning of your Bible or in your app, it should tell you kind of where to find it. It's a little book kind of somewhere near the middle, so it can be a little bit tricky to find. We're about to embark on a six-week study of this book, and we're entitling it Scandalous Love. And I think you'll see why that is as we uh, jump into the first chapter here today. And as we look at this text together, we'll see a central truth that the way that God loves sinners isn't an ordinary kind of love. It is a scandalous love. God scandalously loves sinners. God scandalously loves sinners. What we'll see as we walk through this is that we cannot truly understand the greatness of God's love for us if we don't first understand the nature of our sin against God. We are great sinners, but we serve a great Savior. So Hosea chapter 1, verse 1, we'll begin reading there. The word of the Lord that came to Hosea, the son of Beeri, in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah, and in the days of Jeroboam, the son of Joash, king of Israel. When the Lord first spoke through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, Go take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom. For the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. So he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim, and she conceived and bore him a son. And the Lord said to him, call his name Jezreel, for in just a little while I will punish the house of Jehu for the blood of Jezreel. And I will put an end to the kingdom of the house of Israel. And on that day I will break the bow of Israel in the valley of Jezreel. She conceived again and bore a daughter. And the Lord said to him, call her name No Mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. But I will have mercy on the house of Judah, and I will save them by the Lord their God. I will not save them by bow, or by sword, or by war, or by horses, or by horsemen. And when she had weaned no mercy, she conceived and bore a son. And the Lord said, Call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. And the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. And they shall appoint for themselves one head. And they shall go up from the land, for great shall be the day of Jezreel. Anytime you're jumping into a new section of scripture, it's important to understand where it fits in the overall narrative of what God is doing. And so the first thing that we're going to look at here is really the context. And we're going to get, look at different aspects of the context, in particular, first, the biblical context. So where this fits into the overall flow of Scripture. Hosea is one of 12 minor prophets. Now that term minor might make it sound like they're unimportant, but that's not really the case. That's just a reference to the length of these books. So in our Old Testament, we have uh, the law, the writings, and the prophets. The prophets begin with the major prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel, and Daniel. 
And then after that, we have the 12 minor prophets, which are relatively shorter books. Now, among the minor prophets, Hosea is a longer minor prophet. So he has 14 chapters. In fact, there's only one other minor prophet that's in that range, Zechariah, which is also 14 chapters. The others are all a good bit shorter even than this. And verse 1 tells us when it is that Hosea ministers. It's in the days of at least four kings of Judah, a couple of which are relatively familiar, particularly Uzziah and Hezekiah. Uzziah, because both Amos and Isaiah tell us that's when they ministered during King Uzziah's reign. And Hezekiah is a, is a long-term, somewhat faithful, mixed, kind of a, a mixed kind of a king. Now, in the northern kingdom, we only find one king listed here, Jeroboam. It's his, Jeroboam II, actually. Now, there are other kings during this time in the northern kingdom, but one thing we'll see is that the, the northern kingdom, it wasn't very stable, and so things turned over so quickly that the other kings uh, actually were either kind of assassinated or died so quickly that they aren't really even worth listing. They never really solidified uh, their rule. And so this brings us to the historical and geographical context. You might even call it geopolitical because this is a time of political instability, political instability. So Hosea's ministry is unusual because he's a long minor prophet, but also because he ministers in the northern kingdom, which is relatively rare among the minor prophets. Most of them minister in the southern kingdom. Now, what we've got here is a map of the divided kingdom of Israel. So you have kings Saul, David, and Solomon that rule the united kingdom. After Solomon passes away, his son Rehoboam rules, and under him, he's kind of an unjust, not kind of, he is an unjust king, and the kingdom splits in two. So you have the northern kingdom, the larger kingdom of ten tribes ruled by Jeroboam, the first. And then in the south you have Judah ruled by Rehoboam and then eventually other kings of Judah. Well, Hosea is one of the few prophets to actually focus on the northern kingdom. And this is in part because of when it is that he ministers. So we have a timeline here of the prophetic ministry. So 865 BC, we have the prophet Elijah. He's really the first prophet that arrives on the, on the scene in 1 Kings chapter 17. For a little over 400 years until 460 BC, we end with Malachi. So the, 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 the ministry of the prophets is just over four centuries. Now I recognize that you can't read everything on this screen, but I'm going to show you a couple spots to kind of place it here. So first of all, in 722 BC, we have the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. That happens right about here. And then 136 years later, the second era, we have 586 BC, we have the southern kingdom fall. So we have two kingdoms that are linked historically, but separated now in terms of their administration and their rule. Now, as you read through the Old Testament, the most common name for the northern kingdom is Israel. But sometimes it's called Ephraim because Ephraim is the most uh, influential tribe in the northern kingdom. And then other times you see it called Samaria because that's its capital city. And so the northern kingdom is politically unstable, and this isn't true just during Hosea's day. It's true from the moment it begins. Now, we're going to zoom in a little bit here. I know you couldn't quite see that. So you see Hosea here in the southern kingdom. And along time, alongside him, you see a couple of other prophets listed in the southern kingdom as well. Well, there weren't a lot. Now, Jonah is listed here. He's known as a northern kingdom prophet, but really he ministered at Nineveh, so he's about around at the same time. As you read along here, there's a big bully on the block during this whole era, and that's the empire of Assyria. Now, leading up to Hosea's day, Assyria has kind of left Israel alone. You can see with, with a big area like this to govern, they've got a lot of issues. And so they've kind of left Israel alone. 
but I don't know, uh, when it comes to land, Assyria is a bit of a glutton. And so now it's time to eat up Israel, and so they're going to come after them. Now, Israel has used this, they are powerful enough really to fend off Assyria, but they've used this time not really to pursue the Lord, but to pursue their own devices. And so they've been under the threat of invasion for some time, but it's about to become a reality. And this leads us then to the spiritual context, the spiritual context. And what we have is a religiously compromised, idolatrous people in Israel. You see, the biggest problem that Israel faced isn't its political instability. It's not threat from outside invaders, but rather they fell over and over on the same sword of their own idolatrous hearts. As the well-known hymn, Come Thou Fount, says, they're prone to wander and leave the God they love, and they do it over and over and over again. King after king after king sets up idols in place of the worship of the living God. You see, Jeroboam I, when he is looking at this, uh, Jerusalem is in the south. The temple is in Jerusalem, and he knew over time if he allowed his people to go worship there, he'd lose control over his nation. So he set up his own high places. Now, we've noted a good bit about the context of this book, but the most important context of all comes right in verse 1. The first five words in this book are potentially the most important words of the book. They're five little words, the word of the Lord. You see, God is not silent. Even in a time of political instability, even in a time of godlessness, even of a time where people are pursuing idolatry, God is not silent and never has been. God is a God who speaks, who reveals himself to his people, and the very first words of Hosea shout that this is true. The word of the Lord came to Hosea. The books of Hosea, Joel, Micah, and Zephaniah begin exactly the same way. The word of the Lord came. Well, if I were to give you a quiz this morning and ask you, you know, what's the number one job of a prophet? I imagine a lot of people would answer something like this. A prophet's job is to predict the future, tell what's about to come. And there's a sense in which this is true because prophets are known about speaking what's about to happen. I mean, as you saw, if you tracked it all, like in the, in the days of Elijah, you've kind of got like this, this Old Testament stuff going on, but you've also got looking forward to the coming of the Lord because there's this kind of foot in what's happening in history, but also looking to the future. But more fundamentally, and more importantly, a prophet's job wasn't primarily to predict the future, although it often involved that, but rather it was to speak the word of the Lord. Not his own words, but God's words. So everything that we're about to encounter is the word of God, and when God speaks, his people listen. And this is true today as well. The role of pastors and preachers isn't primarily to bring our own ideas it's not to entertain people or always even encourage people, although it includes that, but to take God's words and take them and serve them to God's people in a way that people can digest them and understand them. So we're not sharing a message that God has laid on our heart, but rather a message that God has already spoken. And we're to share that word with God's people. This is the word of the Lord. And because God has spoken... That's why we respond to the word of the Lord by saying, thanks be to God. So this moves us from the context to what God actually says. What is this word of the Lord? And we find a command in verses 2 and 3. Now, I know in a room this size, we've got some people who are still 
figuring this out. And that is, what in the world is the meaning of love? Now, I know you think I'm referring to young people who are figuring that out, but I know some of y'all are old and you're still figuring that out. Like, how does this work? In fact, we've got, uh, you know, whole industries in our nation devoted to trying to help us figure this out. I mean, there is a movie genre known as the romantic comedy or rom-com, and it's like to help us figure out, you know, you put it romantic and comedy together because it's hard to figure out and it leads us into situations where we get ourselves in trouble. Or we've got entire channels on our cable television networks devoted to this. A, a number of them, but the most, I don't know, the most notorious of which is the Hallmark Channel, which is devoted to helping people figure out how it doesn't work in real life, but how you wished it worked in real life. That's kind of the point of the Hallmark Channel, right? And so we go through life, and at some level, we're all trying to figure out how does love work? In fact, in the Christian world, we've kind of invented our own genre. You know, Christian romance wasn't enough, so we invented Christian Amish romance. Because, you know, Amish love stories are so much more winsome than the average love story. And so we've got entire genres, both in the world at large as well as in the Christian world, trying to figure out what in the world does love mean? Well, here's the bottom line. When you're looking for someone to love, you look for the best fit. This is, tr this is true in cultures historically that have arranged marriages. You try to find a good fit for your son or daughter. It's also true in, in cultures like ours that have largely freedom of choice in terms of who we commit our lives to. So in the economy of the life we live, as well as in the economy that we see in God's word, verse 2 is absolutely shocking. It makes no sense. The Lord says, go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom. Now imagine that you're Hosea. Hosea is a very young prophet, probably around the age of 19 years old. And you're like, God is going to speak through me. And the very first you command you receive from the Lord is, go take a wife of whoredom. Now sometimes this, this phrase is translated adulterous wife or promiscuous woman, which is its most basic meaning. The Bible is full of warnings against this kind of woman. Proverbs 7 famously Keep from the forbidden woman, from the adulteress with her smooth words. You see, God's design for marriage, as established in the Garden of Eden in Genesis chapter 2, is that one man commits to one woman in lifelong marriage. We find this same principle reiterated in the Gospels, in the words of Christ. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. And then in the epistles, it's repeated again among much other teaching about marriage. Paul, in Ephesians chapter 5, says the same thing. Commit one man, one woman. As Christ loved the church, love your wife and wives respect your husbands. In fact, as we work our way through scripture, the whole basis for biblical marriage is a faithful covenant commitment. In Christian marriages, a man and woman covenant to each other in the sight of God and witnesses to love one another faithfully for their whole life. Boredom is not that. It's a shattering of that covenant. It's when someone is not only unfaithful to the marriage covenant, but so repeatedly and flagrantly unfaithful that they're a repeat offender, either before marriage or during marriage. And the way that this reads falls like a hammer on our ears. Go, take to yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great Whoredom. And if you're feeling a little bit uncomfortable or think this is a bit crude, our English translations have actually softened this a little bit for us. 
They've translated only three times. It actually appears four times in the original Hebrew. So how is it that God tells this prophet to do something apparently immoral? Well, some interpreters theorize that God knew that Gomer had this tendency in her heart, but Hosea wouldn't necessarily know it. So it's only in retrospect that Hosea knows this is the kind of woman that he married. Now, this view is possible, but it's unlikely because God repeats the same command in chapter 3, which makes it less likely. Now, others point out that what's going on here is that Israel of Hosea's day is so immoral that to marry any woman in this land is to take an immoral wife. There, there, there are no other kinds of wives available. Others deal with this by saying this is actually just a vision that the prophet has, that it never actually happens in real life. But there are no markers, signals in the Bible itself that tell us that this is a vision, sort of like Ezekiel seeing a ladder uh, to heaven or a wheel in the sky. And it seems to treat it as if it's real events. So and we can go down this road with theory after theory because people try to figure out ways to deal with the difficulty. Yet as difficult it is, as difficult as it, as it is for us to understand this, God doesn't command Hosea to do anything contrary to God's word. Leviticus 21.14 commands priests must marry a virgin, but there are no such restrictions for prophets or the rest of the nation. And I think if we try to explain what's happening here, we actually miss the point of what's going on. The point of this is the scandal. It is the shocking nature of this. Gomer is the worst sort of wife. She's repeatedly unfaithful. She ain't at all the kind of nice young lady you want to bring home to mama. She don't, she's not the person you want sitting down at your dinner table to, someone, to love someone like this who not only pursues sin, but does it in a way that drags your name through the mud as well, is to pursue the, the most difficult task. I mean, even the most humble men and women have their limits. And people have certainly forsaken their spouse for a lot less than Hosea is about to go through. This isn't a picture of the ideal marriage, but a picture of the biggest mismatch possible. A prophet of God and a prostitute. You see, like much of Scripture, Hosea's and Gomer's marriage isn't the ultimate picture. It's a reflection of the ultimate picture. There are echoes in their story of our own story and the story of Israel. So let's dip back into the command of verse 2. Go take yourself a wife of whoredom and have children of whoredom, for the land commits great whoredom by forsaking the Lord. You see, the scandal that jumps off the page is Hosea's marriage. But the far greater scandal is what comes at the end of verse 2. They forsook the Lord. God's people commit spiritual adultery by breaking faith with God. The scandalous marriage isn't a mistake. It's the point. God's people don't deserve God's love. Unfaithful. Wandering. Leaving God for other things. Just about anything. I mean, what kind of things will we leave God for? Money? Sex? Power? Pleasure? But it doesn't stop there. The American church has perfected the Israelite passion for spiritual adultery. And actually, River Baptist Church has more than its fair share of this guilt. Football. Soccer basketball 
baseball, golf, kids' sports, adult sports, music, theater, dance, academics, our children, not having children so we can have our freedom, pets, boat, car, house, job, politics, religious tradition, even our own, my time, my priorities, my stuff, my life. I mean, if there's any church that can understand the spiritual adultery of Israel, it's our church. And if we're honest, if there's any heart that can understand spiritual adultery, it's our heart. It's my heart. You see, Hosea points to Israel's unfaithfulness. And Israel's unfaithfulness points to ours. This is ultimately a record of our sin and our need for a savior. So Hosea does what he's supposed to do. Verse 3, he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. She conceived and bore him a son. And this brings us to the curse of God's judgment in verses 4 through 9. The curse of God's judgment in verses 4 through 9. Now we're introduced to God's judgment by meeting Hosea's kids. Now that's not normally a good sign. We got three children listed here, Jezreel, Lo-Rahama, and Lo-Ami. Now in our Bibles, often they're translated, uh, no mercy, Lo-Rahama, and, and not my people, Lo-Ami. So we've got these first three kids, the first of which is Jezreel, a son. This is the equivalent of naming your child Pearl Harbor, or if you're a British, Waterloo, or some military slaughter, a, a disaster. You see, the, uh, th this tells the story of a part of Israel's history that, that's pretty terrible. King Jehu is commanded by the Lord to slaughter Ahab's house to judge Ahab for his wickedness. And he does this. But he goes a lot further than God says. And he carries, carries the slaughter a lot further than God commanded. Not only that, he pursued his own idols pretty, pretty flagrantly. In 2 Kings chapter 10, verse 31, Jehu was not careful to walk in the law of the Lord with all his heart. Therefore, God would bring an end to the house of Jehu. This slaughter happens in the valley of Jezreel. So naming their child Jezreel is a reminder of this. In 2 Kings chapter 15, Jehu's last descendant is assassinated. 30 years later, the army of Israel is destroyed and the nation carried into exile. Jezreel is a reminder of all of this. It's the worst parts of the worst parts of Israel's history. Well, then they name their daughter Lo-Rahama, or no mercy, literally no love, verse 6. And the way the text puts this is an important clue into what's going on. Verse 3, Jezreel, she bore him, Hosea, a son. But we don't find that after that. Verse 6, she bore a daughter. Verse 8, she bore a son. What the text is implying is that while the first child belonged to Hosea, the second and third did not. Well, when you become a parent, whether that's through the birth of a child or adoption, it's impossible to anticipate what happens in your heart. I remember people uh, telling me that before I had kids, but you, it's something that I couldn't understand and, until it happened. And then it happened, and you're like, whoa, I've never felt anything quite like this. After 10 years now of being a parent, some of you have been a parent much longer, it's impossible to describe how much you love your kids. So to begin a child's life, 
by naming a child no love feels impossibly wrong. It's like a curse on that child. But what God is demonstrating is that his parent-like, father-like love for the nation of Israel is about to end. Verse 6, call her name no mercy, for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Families love. Parents love. And one of the biggest faults and benefits of parents is that they normally extend more grace to their kids than other people will. And sometimes get frustrated that other people don't do the same thing. So when God says he will no longer intervene, no longer save his children, something has gone terribly wrong. Imagine with me, and for some of us, we don't have to imagine this. This has been our life experience. That you have a child that you love, you dote on, you devote yourself to, to protect, you care. And you love this child for year after year after year. But as that child grows older, the child begins to turn from the Lord and from you in, in pretty flagrant ways. Perhaps through some sort of, uh, you know, drug abuse, uh, some sort of flagrant uh, sexual immorality, running after other things. And so there's a part of you that still wants to protect your child, but you're faced with this terrible choice. How do I do this given the choices my child is making? The child begins to pursue this. And so over time, you determine that the best way to love your child is to stop protecting them from the consequences of the choices. So not out of hatred, but out of love for that child, you now let that child experience the consequences of her sin in, in, in a greater way. You don't step in and intervene when, when someone comes knocking or the law comes pursuing. You don't step in and intervene when they find themselves uh, relationally or physically or financially destitute. Because in mercy for that person, you want that person to experience the consequences of their sin. You don't want to enable their sin. Rather, you want them to turn from their sin in repentance. That's a little bit of what we have going on here. God is allowing the nation to experience the consequences of their sin. But God does note that he'll continue to have mercy on Judah in verse 7. See, Israel falls in 722 B.C. And it's not for 136 years until Judah falls. Even in judgment, God is long-suffering. Well, now child number three arrives. And verse 9 is perhaps the most remarkable curse of all. Loami, not my people. You see, when God was setting apart Israel as his holy people throughout the Old Testament, and establishing his covenant, he spoke of them in a particular way, over and over, by using these words, I will be your God, and you shall be my people. Exodus 6, verse 7, I will take you to be my people, and I will be your God. Leviticus 26, verse 12, I will walk among you and will be your God, and you shall be my people. And you can find this over and over, and hints of this over and over throughout the history of God's people. So he's not merely choosing some random name. Rather, he's taking all the blessings promised in his covenant and he's reversing them with a curse. You shall be my people. And he's saying, no longer will you be my people. You are not my people. He's rejecting them in the most graphic way. Their identity changes. No longer are they children of the living God, but now they are slaves of this world. You see, in the same covenant, Leviticus 26 when the Lord promised unimaginable blessing to his people, he also promised judgment for breaking the covenant. But, the Lord goes on to say, if you will not listen to me and will not do these commandments, but break my covenant, then I will set my face against you. You shall be struck down before your enemies. Those who hate you shall rule over you. The time has come. We call this series Scandalous Love, but what we see 
in God's word is that we cannot understand God's love apart from a clear understanding of our sin. You see, God doesn't love us because we deserve his love. God doesn't love us because we're worthy of his love. Listen to the way that God's word describes us apart from Christ. At that time, God says, we were weak, ungodly, dead in our trespasses and sins, blind, enemies of God, rebels against God, wretches before God. And sometimes we teach the love of God in a way that's like, I don't know, a kid walking into a toy store and seeing all of these uh, amazing toys and just choosing a, a few toys that, that are the most attractive. God loves you because you're worth it. But if we're honest about ourselves, nothing can be further from the truth. Like the nation of Israel, we are covenant breakers. But we live in a culture that ironically pats itself on the back as being morally superior to previous generations. Because we're more enlightened when it comes to issues of race or the rights of women. But we're not better. We just sin differently. Each generation has its own sin. I mean, we continue unabated the slaughter of unborn children. Professing Christians throw away any semblance of biblical sexuality. The divorce rate is going down. Not because people are committing more faithfully in marriage. They're just not marriage. They're just not getting married in the first place. Simply living together. But it's not merely cultural problems out there. It's in here. It's in here. We're good at painting the barn. Painting the outside of the barn full of manure on the inside. We get dressed up nice on Sunday, if we come to church right now. And call each other during the week to complain or gossip about the very people we're covenanted to love. We get angrier about what someone thinks or says about masks than about someone taking God's name in vain. You see, the depth of our sin and the frequency of our sin highlights the scandal of God's love. We're not the spouse you bring home to mama. No one wants to introduce us to this bridegroom. An October 2019 study found that, quote, religious conservatives in the United States Bible Belt search for online porn more than anyone else. Across two separate years and controlling for demographic variables, we observed moderate to large positive associations between greater proportions of state-level religiosity and general web searching for sexual content. If you didn't follow that, statistically, the areas of our country that are the most Christian are the most sexually promiscuous. This 2019 study corroborates earlier studies from 2017 and 2015. Brothers and sisters, God doesn't love us because we're worth it. God loves us because his character is mercy, compassion, grace, and love. If that weren't the case, we would be consumed. God is love. But God's love is a holy love. We can't understand God's love apart from understanding that we're sinners. 
So thankfully, this passage does not stop here with a curse. We see ultimately God's compassion, verses 10 and 11. And I love this because we see this throughout Scripture. We see the holiness of God. We see the judgment of God. But God has pronounced three curses. No mercy. Not my people. Judgment is coming. And as soon as these words are out of his mouth, he's promising mercy. As soon as the words of judgment come from his lips, he immediately again highlights his mercy. Verse 10, yet the number of the children shall be like the sand of the sea, which can't be measured or numbered. You remember God's promise to Abraham? I mean, it happened several times, but particularly in Genesis chapter 22. In Genesis 22, the Lord commands Abraham to go sacrifice his son, your only son, Isaac, he says. Abraham obeys God, but before the sacrifice can happen, God provides a substitute sacrifice, a ram in his place, and Abraham sacrifices the lamb. And then the Lord pronounces blessing on Abraham. Because you have not withheld your son, your only son, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And that's the very same language we find here. Israel multiplies the sand of the sea. So in spite of God's judgments, Israel will multiply. It doesn't stop there. Verse 10 goes on. In the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. So remarkably, in spite of how seriously God takes sin, and he does, he commits to love his people. I mean, and look at the way Hosea puts it. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. It shall be said to them, children of the living God. So he's not denying that judgment comes, but he's saying that in the same way, in an even greater way that judgment comes, the blessing will come. The nation, fractured into two kingdoms, will be reversed. The children of Judah, verse 11, and the children of Israel shall be gathered together. Well, how does this happen? Do God's people get better, more faithful, self-improved? That never happens. But what we do see is that the kind of blessing and unity we see here doesn't happen by human power or ingenuity. The power for this kind of change comes in the middle of verse 11. They shall appoint for themselves one head. Jesus is coming. We get to the book of Matthew. And the king is here. There is one ruler for God's people. And this ruler is Jesus the king. We find as many ways to sin as there are minutes in the day. But oh, praise God, there is only one Savior, Jesus. And he is coming. God takes our spiritual adultery, our lust, our pride, our greed, our fear, our anger, and he exchanges it for the perfect faithfulness, the perfect righteousness of Jesus the King. 2 Corinthians 5.21 tells us what happens. For our sake, he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, so that in him, that is in Christ, we might become the righteousness of God, something we don't deserve and can never earn. And the new covenant in both Jeremiah and Ezekiel predicts that this will happen. Jeremiah 32.38, on that day they shall be my people and I will be their God. And then this new covenant is ultimately fulfilled in the new heaven and the new earth in Revelation chapter 21. Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. 
He will dwell with them and they will be his people and God himself will be with them as their God. Same language, same covenant renewed in Jesus Christ. Imagine that you are the unlovable. Completely unworthy. Rejectable spouse. And yet Christ, the bridegroom, pursues And the crazy thing about this is we don't have to imagine that we're unworthy. We don't have to imagine that we're not worthy of God's love. And yet Christ does love us. Christ does pursue us. I mean, what does this kind of perspective on the love of God do to your feelings of shame? Shame about sin that you've committed. Shame that if anyone knew, the people around you would never look at you the same way. Or maybe it's shame over something that's happened to you. Abuse that you've received. Some sort of scandal that you've been torn by. The abandonment of someone who was supposed to love you. What is reflecting on all of this in the character of Christ, the compassion of Christ, the grace, the mercy, the love of Christ? What does this do to our feelings of unworthiness, our fear, our anxiety? The amazing thing is, is that in spite of how great sinners we are, God is far more able to love us than we are able to understand or comprehend his love. So how do these blessings come to us? Through the gospel. That is through none other than Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as he is revealed in the word of God. You see, our first father and mother, Adam and Eve, were the original covenant breakers in the Garden of Eden. And every person born in that line, every human being since, has been born a covenant breaker. And yet God sent his perfectly faithful son, the covenant keeper, Jesus Christ, in our place. So the promise we saw a few moments ago, we are credited with the righteousness of Christ if we will only trust the death, burial, resurrection of Jesus in our place. Turn from our sin and all that is Christ's can be ours. Would you turn from your sin and trust Jesus? Fully relying on him and him alone for salvation. If you're here this morning and you don't have a personal relationship with Christ, would love to talk with you more about this after the service or one day this week. Let's take a moment now and respond to God's word in repentance and faith. I'll give you a moment to talk with God personally and then I'll close this time in prayer. Let's talk with him now.